Welcome. You're listening to Sunday Sermons from Catalyst Church San Diego, where we want to see our community, city, and world changed by the gospel. God's promises are incredible, are they not? They're amazing. We are blessed by the promises of God. We didn't do anything to earn them. We didn't do anything to deserve them. They come simply from God's grace. And we just thank him for, for his promises and his love for us. God's promises, they come to us in Scripture through, they often come through something called a covenant. Um, I'll talk more about what that is, but really simply right now, just to introduce it, a covenant's kind of like a contract. You may not be familiar with what a covenant is, but you kind of get the idea from a contract. For instance, one of the things I've learned in life is that you get paid a lot of money if you are really good at hitting a ball with a stick. Uh, Before the beginning of this season, Manny Machado, anybody who knows who that is, Padres third baseman, he he signed a contract extension for $350 million with the Padres. He's set to be a Padres player until he's 40 years old, making an average base salary of $32 million a year. The good news for him with $32 million in San Diego, it's just, just enough to get you a two-bedroom condo. So <laughs> just enough. So he's, I think, one of the few people that can afford it. <laughs> but there's a, there's a big difference between a contract, particularly his contract and God's covenant. His contract is millions of dollars. It has an end. God's covenant is eternal and it is priceless. His contract requires him to perform. God's covenant doesn't require us to perform. God has already done the work for us by sending his son to the cross. I'll take that any day. The covenant that we have in Christ is invaluable. What is this new covenant in Christ, which we'll be talking about today, and how should it affect our lives? Going to be today in Mark chapter 14, Mark 14, verses 12 to 31, and we are getting to the end of Mark, believe it or not. We are, uh, Mark has three more chapters, 14, 15, and 16. And so we are in Mark 14, it's still going to take us a little bit, but We're getting there. Mark 14, starting at verse 12. If you have your pew Bible, it's page 902. So we pick up in Mark 14 and verse 12, and it says, On the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples asked him, Where do you want us to go and prepare the Passover so that you may eat it? So Jesus sent two of his disciples and told them, go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. This is going to be incredible as you see this. He's going to give them this whole thing. Follow him. Wherever he enters, tell the owner of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, furnished already, furnished and ready. Make the preparations for us there. So the disciples went out, entered the city, and found it just as he had told them, 
and they prepare the Passover. When evening came, he arrived with the twelve. While they were reclining and eating, Jesus said, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be distressed and to say to him one by one, Surely not I. Jesus said to them, It is one of the twelve, the one, the one who is dipping bread in the bowl with me. For the Son of Man will go just as it is written, just as it is written about him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for him if he had not been born. We get to verse 22. As they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed and broke it, gave it to them and said, Take it. This is my body. Then he took a cup and after giving thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank from it. Jesus said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly, I tell you, I will no longer drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. After singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Verse 27, then Jesus said to them, all of you will fall away because it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. Peter told them, even if everyone falls away, I will not. Truly, I tell you, Jesus said to him, today, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he kept insisting, if I have to die with you, I will never deny you. And they all said, the same thing. The word of the Lord, let's pray together. Lord, we, God, just commit this time to you, God. Lord, Lord, I pray you would open eyes, open ears, Lord. Let us submit to you today. Learning more about who you are, growing in you, Lord. And may you get the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. This particular text, as we're looking at in Mark 14, verses 12 to 31, you're familiar with it as a Christian because we often hear about the Lord's Supper. But as you read this and in this text, one thing to note that's, that strikes me about this text is that it is incredibly Jewish. There's a lot of meaning. What I mean by that, there's a lot of meaning in this text as you're going through it. There's a lot of meaning in it that means a lot for a first century Jew. That for them, they would understand, but for us, takes some explaining. For instance, we're, we're looking at a text that's commonly referred to, people know it as the Last Supper. And the setting for this meal is in an upper room. Well, if you're in the first century and you have a first century home in Israel, the upper room of the home was often used for private gatherings and for, lar- and for meals. And this particular meal is a very significant meal for Jesus and his disciples. It is a meal, as we're getting close to the cross, we are in Passover. 
And later on in this text, you'll be, he, Jesus is going to take bread and he's going to take wine. These, this bread and this wine, this is two elements of the Passover meal. The bread is this unleavened bread. It's a type of bread that comes without yeast. It's very connected to the Exodus story. And the wine is part of the celebration for the meal. Passover itself refers to uh, something in the book of Exodus. It's the 10th plague brought upon by God against the Egyptians. God, what he would do here, he would use this 10th plague to finally have Pharaoh drive out the Israelites out of Egypt, where Pharaoh just says, enough, go. And in this plague, if you know the 10th plague here, that what's referred to as in Passover, in this plague, the firstborn male of people and animals would be killed all over Egypt. But what's really interesting, if you look at this plague, God would show a distinction. There would be a distinguishing mark between the people of Israel and the people of Egypt. They're told in Exodus 12, verse 5, they're told that they are to get an unblemished animal, a year old uh, from either the sheep or the goats. And so they get this, they get this animal, this lamb, they sacrifice a lamb, and they take, they take the blood of the lamb, and they use the blood of the lamb, and they put it on the doorposts on each side and on the lintel. The lintel is the top beam above the door. So they would, they would take blood of the lamb, and they would put the lamb on the doorposts and on the lintel. And regarding this judgment, so here's this judgment. The judgment's coming all over Egypt. Every, there's, there's death coming on the firstborn males. The Israelites are told, get the blood of a lamb, put the blood of a lamb on the doorpost and on the lintel. And then Exodus 12, verses 12 to 13, it says this. It says, I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night and strike every firstborn male in the land of Egypt, both people and animals. I am the Lord. I will execute judgments against all the all gods of Egypt, all the gods. And then in verse 13, the blood on the houses where you are staying will be a distinguishing mark for you. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. No plague will be among you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So if you catch what's happening here, because of the blood of the lamb, the Israelites did not receive the plague coming upon Egypt. Death is coming all over the land. But because of the blood of the lamb, it passes over the people of Israel. Now that doesn't preach the gospel. I don't know what does. God has redeemed believers in Jesus Christ by his blood. This is why John the Baptist says in John 1 29, he says, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Sin sinners are redeemed in Christ by, because of the blood of Jesus, the blood of the Lamb of God. Death, the, that plague that comes before people who are not in Christ, that passes over 
people in Jesus because of who he is. Verse 12, it opens us up in, in Mark, back in Mark. It opens us up. It talks about the first day of unleavened bread when they sacrificed the Passover lamb. I told you this is an incredibly Jewish text. First day of unleavened bread is spoken of in Exodus 12, 16, when they're, they're told to hold a sacred assembly on that day and that no work may be done on those days except for preparing what people need to eat. So in essence, what's happening here is they are they've sacrificing the lamb and beginning to prepare it for the meal. As you get through verses 13 through 16, there is this incredible, Jesus shows this incredible divine attribute of God. What's interesting is as I've been going through this gospel, you just see all these different points where Jesus just shows that he is God in the flesh. He displays this divine attribute, which would be known as God's foreknowledge. That's a fancy way of saying that God knows the future. As theologians describe this, they talk about God's passive awareness of the future choices of free people. So that people are responsible for their choices. And at the same time, God is not unaware. God isn't caught by surprise. He knows the future. So you get to verses 13 through 16, it sounds it's very interesting. He tells them, he says, okay, this is what's going to happen. Listen, disciples, this is exactly what's going to happen when you, when you go into the city. I want you to go into the city. When you get in there, you are going to find a man carrying a jar of water. When you see that man carrying a jar of water, follow him. He's going to take you to a house. When you get to the house, I want you to ask him a question. I want you to say, um, where, show me the guest room where Jesus can enter and, and have a Passover meal with his disciples. This is what he's going to show you. He's going to take you upstairs. There's going to be a large room upstairs, and this room's going to be already furnished, ready for you to go. And what I want you to do is make the preparations there. Don't you wish we can get instructions like that? Get like an email the night before. So this is what I want you to do. Wake up, brush your teeth, go have a bagel with cream cheese. When you get to work, give a, say hi to John, Bobby, and Sue. Give a high five to John. He's doing a good job. And then you'll get an email later that day, the boss. You tell the boss, I'm getting right on it, and remind him you get off at 4 p.m. I wish we could get, like, instructions like that. And a reminder that God does guide and lead us as we're sensitive to his spirit within us. Before the Lord, as you're looking in here in Mark 14, this particular Passover meal, it's precious. This is, an, this is a meal that the Lord is looking forward to. You know, at this point in his life, the Lord is probably about 33 years old, and he's eaten many Passover meals in the past, but this one, this particular one, is special. Luke 22, verses 15 to 16 He's going to describe this. He says, says that uh, I have fervently desired to eat this Passover meal with you. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. 
He says, I fervently desire to eat this Passover meal with you. Why was this Passover meal so special? Why did he desire to eat this this particular meal with them? In this meal, Jesus is getting close to the culmination of his life's work. He is getting close to the cross. And he is about to declare to his disciples here the fulfillment of a prophecy. I told you this is a very Jewish text. There's a prophecy in Jeremiah verses, in chapter 31 of Jeremiah, verses 31 and 34. I'm actually going to read it later. But in this, in this text, the pro, Jesus right now in Mark 14, he is declaring the fulfillment in this text, the new covenant, a new covenant that is coming in his blood. Now, the very term covenant, this, this is why this takes a while. The very term covenant is, is, means a lot for a Jew. It means a lot for the Jewish people. Our concept of, and in fact, our concept of a covenant can kind of be a little skewed simply by the way that Christians have laid out portions of Scripture. If you have your Bible and you, you look at it, this Bible has something called an Old Testament and a New Testament. Well, if you don't know, the word for testament is a Latin word. It's a word that means covenant. So they are, so Christians before said, okay, well, this portion, we'll call this the Old Testament or Old Covenant, and this portion is the New Testament or New Covenant. And that's a bit misleading because there are not just two covenants. There are much more than that. And I, and I, so when we're asking this, we have to ask the question, what is a covenant? And I'm going to give credit here to my seminary professor. I actually reached out to uh, him. His name's Dr. James Fazio from Southern California Seminaries. So I want to give him credit for stuff I'm going to tell you. But you, they pay, you pay big bucks for this in seminary, you get it for free. What I give, I pass on to you. So... I give you, it's on the house today. <laughs> he describes the definition of a covenant, of what an actual covenant is. A covenant is a compact or agreement between two parties which bind them to certain commitments for one and from one another to each other. Right? So, they, so you have this commitment between two parties. But theologically, if you're talking from God's perspective in relation between God and man, it's God's commitment, God's gracious commitment to bless man based solely on who he is. There's nothing that man can do for God. And there are three, if I want to know what is an actual biblical covenant, there are three different aspects that he points out here, three aspects of a biblical covenant. First, it must actually be called a covenant. It'd be a surprise. You look in scripture, it actually says God, I will make a covenant with you. And so, they, so it's actually called a covenant in Scripture. And then it continues on to succeeding generations, and it's confirmed to future generations, these three aspects of a covenant. And so he, he actually shows, uh, he gives us seven biblical covenants. I think we have a slide on this, a list of different covenants. And I want, this would be a much longer class, and we'll sound like a, we will definitely sound like a seminary class if I go through all of them. But um, 
I'll just read them off to you. We have the, and it's the next slide. We have the Noahic Covenant, the Abrahamic Covenant, the Mosaic Covenant. You didn't know there was a Phineas Covenant, but there is one. Um, Deuteronomic Covenant, the Davidic Covenant, and then the New Covenant, which we'll talk about. Out of these, the, the, the covenant to Noah is one we recognize. Uh, it's a covenant that God makes with Noah and his descendants. He makes this covenant that says I, that I, he would never again judge the earth with a global flood. And then he puts a rainbow in the sky as a sign of the covenant. The Abrahamic covenant refers to God when, when God makes this covenant with Abraham that he, his, he would have numerous descendants. And this, these numerous descendants would be a nation and that through his descendants, all nations would be blessed. Now, when you get to the Mosaic Covenant, the Mosaic Covenant is actually one that's very interesting. It's unique among this list of seven covenants. The rest of the covenants are something called unconditional. What that simply means, being an unconditional covenant, simply means that it doesn't require anything on the other party. So that God makes a covenant, and when he makes a covenant with Abraham, it just based on who God is. God is just blessing, choosing to bless, and just choosing to bless Abraham, that through Abraham you would have all these descendants and a nation and would bless the nations. But the Mosaic Covenant is a little different. It's, it's the only one here that's conditional, meaning that if you follow my law, if you, if you do these different things, I will bless you. And you have this there's one covenant where that actually says, if you follow my law, if you do these particular things, I will bless you. And when we get, so the reason I bring that up is because you have an old, you have this concept of a covenant and Jesus is bringing in a new covenant. It being new, what is that new, what is it new from? What is the old covenant that it's replacing? And I believe what the, what the Old Covenant uh, then to the New Covenant is, it's, it's referring specifically to this Mosaic Covenant. Where do I get that from? I'm going to tell you that now. Jer- Jer- uh, Prophet Jeremiah, chapter 31, verses 31 to 34. Take a look at this. Look, the days are coming. This is the Lord's declaration. When I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. This one will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors on the day I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant they broke, even though I am their master, the Lord's declaration. Instead, listen to this in verse 33. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days. The Lord's declaration. I will put my teaching within them and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will one teach his neighbor or his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me from the least to the greatest of them. This is the Lord's declaration. For I will forgive their iniquity and never again remember their sin. Praise the Lord. And I think this prophecy, this is the reason that Jesus is, is desiring to eat this meal with the, 
with the disciples. He's desiring this. Because the Mosaic Covenant, what did it do? All it did, it, it did two things. It exposed the righteousness of God's law, and it exposed the depravity of the hearts of mankind. It exposed that even if you give me a list of things to do, I will inevitably break one or most of them. And this is this new covenant that's coming, this new covenant that Jesus fulfills, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, that will break the stranglehold of sin on mankind. It's the new covenant that will bring redemption and restoration for God's people. It's the new covenant in the blood of the Lamb that will make you and I free to know Him and to love Him. Praise God for His covenant in Christ. The new covenant in Christ causes us to do a couple things. Here's the first thing that it does. The new covenant in Christ causes us to examine ourselves. The new covenant causes us to examine ourselves. You, get, you look here in Mark 14. We are here in Mark 14, 12 to 31. And right in the middle of this, right in the middle of this declaration of the new covenant, you have sandwiched between this, you have betrayal and denial. There's betrayal on one hand in Judas, and there's denial on the other hand in Peter. Now, I think if you look at these two, if you had to choose one of them, if you had to choose one, you'd, you'd choose denial over betrayal. Why? I mean, you would rather be Peter than Judas. To be someone in denial is to deny something that you actually are. Peter, he's denying on a surface level what he is actually deep down, a follower of Christ. That's not to excuse Peter. That's just to say, I would rather be Peter than Judas. Betrayal is something different. Betrayal is to expose a lie that you are living. You say that you are something, but your actions show that really you're not. I mean, we all start off in rebellion against God. We start off as people in sin. We start off as people that say, God, I'm resisting you. I am, a, I am against you. That's what being a sinner is, being in rebellion against God's holiness, his perfection. But the story of Judas, when you look at the story of Judas, it is tragic. Here you have a man. He is in the inner circle of the Son of God. He walks with Christ. He spends time in his ministry with Christ. He has his feet washed by Christ, and yet his heart is never changed by Christ. It's tragic. And you get to verse 21, and you have a summary. Here's a summary of the story of the life of Judas, where, where Jesus says in Mark 14, 21, for the Son of Man will go just as it is written about him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for him if he had not been born. What a sad statement. 
It would have been better for him if he had not been born. So you, you, had, you had the blessing of being created in the image of God. You had the blessing to have the opportunity to, to sit under the teaching of the Son of God, of Jesus. You had the opportunity you had the opportunity presented to you to be a part of the new covenant in Christ, and yet you betrayed him for a few pieces of silver. That's the story of the life of Judas. But it does, when you see that, it does cause you to examine your own life, doesn't it? I mean, you sit with the opportunity to know Christ. You sit with the opportunity to be a part of the new covenant in Christ. Let that be the truth of who you are. See, Peter, he's going to deny Jesus. He will be in sin. Yet his life just cries out. All it says is that, all it says is that God, I need your grace. God, I am weak. God, I am frail. When the going gets tough, I fall down. God, I need you. John, in the Gospel of John, he describes what happens to Judas in the upper room. It's in John 13. The disciples, what's happening here in John 13, the disciples are sitting around. They're trying to figure out what's, what's going on. Jesus is saying that one of you, one of these 12, are going to, to betray me. And the disciples are saying, well, who? it's not me, right? It's not I. And, and look at this in verse 26, verses 26 to 27. Actually, a little bit before this, Peter goes to John and says, hey, can you tell, ask Jesus who it's going to be? And Jesus replies, he's the one I give the piece of bread to after I have dipped it. And when he had dipped the bread, he gave it to Judas, Simon Iscariot's son. And after Judas ate the piece of bread, Satan entered him. And Jesus told him, what you are doing, do quickly. Judas had this opportunity. He had been walking with Jesus, and yet he decided to follow the example of Satan. Just like Satan had been an angel in the presence of God and let pride cause him to fall into sin, Judas let greed and pride separate him from the Son of God, separate him from the covenant, an interesting thing about this new covenant, it is, it is a distinguishing mark. It's a distinguishing mark between death and life. Remember in the Passover where the judgment of death came over the whole land? But it passed over those who were under the blood of the Lamb? The people under the blood of the Lamb had life. And the tragic story of Judas is that he was not a part of the blood of the Lamb. The judgment of death did not pass over him. He stood in the midst of the Son of God and did not partake in the blood. It's tragic. I was having this conversation earlier this week, actually. It was, it was interesting we have a new generation growing up. It's a generation that's growing up with this technology. And I, and I find it fascinating what it must be like to have this technology that you're always kind of looking at yourself. I have an awesome, this, I have an awesome nephew and niece. 
My sister had twins. They're both now about a year and a half old at this point. And my sister, she posted a video online of her, son, of her and her son, my nephew, and I think they were watching a movie. But my little nephew, he is, he's like watching the video, and um, the, I guess the selfie, right, from the phone. And he's like, he's getting a kick out of this. He's like, I don't know if he, I don't know if he necessarily like connects that that's him, but he's like waving his hands and he's smiling and he's grabbing a great job as he's looking at himself in this, in this video. And you have a new generation of kids growing up that are, in, that are increasingly self-conscious about their appearance as they have constant opportunities to see themselves. And yet, let me tell you what the real challenge is, as challenging as that may be, the real challenge is not to judge what's on the outside. The real challenge is to judge what's on the inside. We'll often see the faults of others way before we see the faults of ourselves. Peter couldn't see what his faults were yet. Judas certainly did not. But the Lord, what he does, the Lord holds a mirror up to us. He holds a mirror up to our hearts, and he says, you see this? You need my grace. You need me. Confess your sins before God. Submit yourself to me. The new covenant in Christ causes us to examine ourselves. And second and last, the new covenant in Christ causes us to embrace forgiveness and remember his sacrifice for us. We get into Mark, back into Mark 14. Mark, yeah, Mark 14. And the Lord, he institutes here this practice for the Christian church, what we describe as the Lord's Supper or communion, Holy Communion. But in this picture, this picture of the Lord's Supper, he gives us an, an incredible picture of the power of God's love and the power of God's forgiveness. Jesus, he takes the, he takes the unleavened, unleavened bread, he, he blesses it, and then he, he breaks it. He breaks it and gives it to his disciples and tells them in Mark 14, verse 22, he says, take it, this is my body. It's a body that is broken, it's a body that's crushed, and every time I eat the bread as I'm taking communion, it reminds me, as literally the bread is crushed, how the Lord was crushed for me and for you. Then he says in verse 24, he says, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. His blood is poured out for many. It's his, this, it's forgiveness and Listen, you have to realize, he is saying this. He's saying, my blood is about to be poured out for many for forgiveness. He sits in a room of men that are, that are about to deny him and run. It says in verse 27, he says, all of you will fall away because it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. 
And yet in the middle of a room of people about to deny him, about to run away, about to turn their back on the Son of God, they're about to strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. Right in the middle of this, he says, I am fulfilling Jeremiah 31, 34, where it says, for I will forgive their iniquity and never again remember their sin. How is his grace so powerful? Eleven men, not counting Judas. Eleven men who, you know, there's another Bible verse that calls them untrained men, but I'll tell you, these eleven men were com- just completed the most intense seminary anyone has ever been to. Three years, they walked with Jesus. They've done life with Jesus. They've been in ministry with Jesus. They've cast out demons in the name of Jesus. Eleven men. And right now, they're about to strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. And don't think you would have done any better. We need his grace. And see, it's interesting. It's easy to talk tough when, you're, when you are in a room of people who agree with you. I love Peter over here. He says in verse 29, he says, if, even if everyone falls away, I will not. And that wasn't true. It's easy to talk the talk when people around you agree. It's hard to take your stand for Jesus when you're the only one standing. And don't think you would have done any better. We need his grace. And as you look at the story, what turns these 11 men around? They go from men who are scattering, who are running away, scared for their life, and something turns them around. What turns them, what turns them around is what Jesus is thinking, because Jesus is already thinking beyond the cross. He says in verse 25, he says, Truly I tell you, I will no longer drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Jesus, he's already looking beyond the cross. After his death comes victory over death. After his death comes resurrection. Death doesn't have any hold on him. It says in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 55 to 57, it says, where death is your victory, where death is your sting. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Here's the difference. See, if the story of the new covenant in Christ, if it was just about the cross, if that was it, it'd be an, it'd be an amazing story, but it would just be death. If the cross were the end, there would be no hope. Death would have the final reign. It would have the final victory. And then how could we embrace his forgiveness if death is all there is? But the resurrection, that's something completely different. Now death is not the end. There is victory over death. Jesus says for you, he says, there is a new life for you in the kingdom of God because I have the victory. And there's coming a day when we will be with him forever. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory in Jesus Christ.
You know, sometimes in the morning it gets really foggy here in San Diego. You wake up and it's like it's, it's hard to see. You get in your car and you try to drive to work and it, the, the fog is so thick. And you drive around, it's hard. You can hardly see because the fog is down. But once the fog lightens up and it goes away, all of a sudden things seem clear. The, the, road, the road is ahead of you. You know where this road is heading. And in the same way, I think, during the cross with the disciples, it was kind of like that thick fog in San Diego. They, told, they were told that this was coming. They were told about the cross, but they, they couldn't see like, where this was going. The enemy struck the shepherd and the sheep scattered. They really couldn't see where this was going. But then three days later, the resurrection and the fog cleared now they can see where the road is heading. Now they see the victory that is in Christ. And the new covenant in Christ, that causes us to embrace his forgiveness because he has the victory. In him we have hope. And I meditate on his sacrifice and praise God that death has no hold on me. It has no hold on you because of who Jesus is. And because there is a covenant in his blood. You have an opportunity to walk in the victory that is in Christ. May that be who you are. The new covenant causes us to examine ourselves. It causes us to take a look inside and just say, God, where am I with you? And then it causes us to embrace his forgiveness I remember his sacrifice for us, knowing that he is the one who has the victory. Thank you for listening to Sunday Sermons from Catalyst Church San Diego. If you're in the San Diego area, we would love for you to visit us. Our church is at 6038 Cumberland Street in San Diego, California. We meet every Sunday for our worship service at 1030 a.m. You can reach us anytime by visiting our website at catalystchurchsd.org or emailing us at info at catalystchurchsd.org. 